Welcome to the ED Jam. This week, I'm chatting to Brad and Tino. Welcome to the ED Jam, legends. You, you, thanks, buddy. You, good to be here. Yeah, you guys are freaking legends. We um, we we got it done eventually. It's taken us a while to kind of, you know, get our schedules happening, but we're here. Um, and we're going to be chatting about sepsis, which is going to be flipping awesome. Um, which I'm stoked. First of all, um, who am I chatting to? Let's start with you, Brad. So uh, I'm Brad. I'm currently working at the Tweed Hospital in Northern New South Wales in emergency. You. Uh, but I have a background in ICU. That's where I met Benny yeah. uh, many, many moons ago. Yeah. Um, and I've just actually, I've just become the, the a CNE for at, in emergency at uh, Tweed. So that's pretty exciting. So that's something you. new for me. And uh, we'll see where we go with it. Hopefully I can impede some knowledge on some young nurses. <laughs> oh, mate, you got to eat some awesome. <laughs> Um, you got eating knowledge, bro. It's good. I think I met you, Brad, when you were an orderly. Is that right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Way back when. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was a warden for Brad, five years before that. Yeah. Look at that, mate. Working oh, through right. the ground. Legend. Yeah. Love. Yeah. Long time. Long time. Tino, and I'm talking to Tino as well. I've actually got to work with both these lads, which is awesome. Um, hit us up, Tino. Uh, my name's Tino. Um, I'm currently working in the Tweed Hospital ICU. Um, yep. and I did some gigs in education, um, and after our support in the Tweed Hospital, and before that, I was I was working with you, Benny, in, in Sydney as well. So main background is ADICU as well. What's been happening at the moment up in that area? I'd love to hear about what's been going on up in Tweed. Yeah, it's been pretty gnarly up here. Hey, in the last um, couple of weeks, um, I was at probably everyone would know who listens to this. If anyone listens to it. Um, we've had some pretty unprecedented flooding in the Northern Rivers, um, really affected areas around the hospital. Um, Tweed, Tweed this itself didn't get hit too badly, um, but surrounding areas, small areas in the rural area like Timbolgum and Mwollumbar and Mullumbimbi and all that in the back of Byron got, you know, devastated, which they're still trying to cope with. Um, so that, I guess, is has been a big thing. I actually, which is minuscule in the scheme of things, but I got stuck at work for four days, which is no not way. Great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's pretty wild. But look, in the in the grand scheme of things, man, people lost their houses, their yeah. lives. It's, it's it's horrendous. So, I mean, it's it's been a, a yeah shocking a shocking time for this part of the part of the world. Even though it's so beautiful normally, it's it's I guess it's not so beautiful at the minute. But got a fantastic community here. Um, and everyone's, you know, banding together to help out where they can do what they can, you know, support whether it's monetary or just going to shovel some mud out of people's houses or just help with people. So it's pretty awesome to see. Um, so it's it's awesome to be here. It's, yeah, yeah, as I said, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Lots of our friends and people at work have lost literally everything. So it's, it's, it's terrible. 
super sad. I've seen some photos of some nurses and doctors that obviously went up there to help out. Mm. Um, and you, you saw it on the news, but I just don't think you really got a real grip of it until you saw some live footage from, you know, people that you knew. And then yeah. you're like, wow, you're kidding me. You know, like two-story houses completely underwater. Uh, yeah. Super sad. It's um, terrible, man. Yeah, it's super sad. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Um, now, we're going to get into some sepsis stuff. Um, we're talking about sepsis because it's pretty common and we see it a bit. Um, both mm. of us have looked after septic patients along the journey. Mm. Um, Brad, yours in ED and Tino in ICU and you've done some ED as well. Um, let's run through a bit of sepsis. Um, so what I want to do, first of all, is basically just talk a little bit about um, what sepsis is uh, and then go from there. So um, let's go. Um, so sepsis, we hear it pretty commonly and basically um, I think the basic definition is sepsis is an infection that triggers the body to respond in a way that's um, that makes the body very sick. And the, the way that our bodies get sick is a convoluted um, array of, of our physiologic responses. Um, there's a lot of systems involved. And basically, um, our immune system would react in an overdriven way that will make our circulation be compromised and as you know when your circulation is compromised there are a lot of organs involved so basically that's that's the sort of the shorthand definition of sepsis for me sweet love it tino um and it's good it's a systemic response to it you know an infection and it can occur in heaps of different ways um and it affects the body in so many different ways um and there's been so many flipping definitions about it um but we know that it's bad <laughs> um yeah basically it's 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 bad <laughs> yeah it's bad so when we hear the term sepsis we generally think bad um and we think that the body's trying to respond or fight something so basically the main trigger of sepsis is an infection yeah that went haywire love it brad um just quickly mate what type of sepsis um when you think of sepsis what do you think of mate uh, basically it's, it's sort of a, a last ditch effort for your body to sort of preserve its, its vital organs in terms of like, you know, brain, heart, lungs, um, guts as, um, so you will get, you know, as a sign from the, like a clinical sign, you get peripheral vasoconstriction, yep. um, peripheral, peripheral shutdown. Um, and therefore it's sort of sending all your blood and, and, and fluid back into the, the main part of your body. Cause sort of the way I see it is that you can live without your limbs, but you can't live without your heart, lungs, and brain. So um, I guess that's sort of where we're, where we're talking. Um, and that's sort of, I guess that's a late presentation. Um, but yeah, a peripheral shutdown uh, to maintain vital organs. Um, cool. Yeah. Love it. So we've got this um, infection that occurs uh, and it can occur sort of anywhere in the body. Name some types of um, sepsis response or some types of septic patients or sort of um, presentations that you've seen before. I guess working up in the Tweed, I guess it's probably general across sort of most emergency departments, but working up in the Tweed and the Northern Rivers, we do um, have a older age group as our, as our sort of demographic. Um, yeah. So in older adults, I guess a common one we see is um, urosepsis. 
Um, and that's obviously secondary to incontinence um, and, you know, not being able to get to the loo in time. So, uh, you know, sit in a wet pad and then they get a UTI and then they, you know, gets, they don't do anything about it and then it sort of progresses to sepsis. I guess clinical signs you see um, in the in first instance of a patient arriving to the emergency department, um, you know, is... Like I've mentioned, if it's in a sort of later stage, you might have some um, peripheral shutdown. So you might have cool peripheries or, or slow cap refill. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be looking at um, sort of tachycardia. So anything over, you know, tachycardia, meaning anything over 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, some hypotension and, and I guess also some, um, some kind of febrile episode. So, you know, something above 37.5. So that's where we're sort of that's what sort of we see as a common presentation into the emergency department. Often, you know, straight off the ambo stretcher, straight onto the bed. Um, that's a pretty common one we see at the Tweed. Awesome. And what would make you sort of think Eurosepsis, Brad? Like the clinical picture from the patient, like what they're telling you or what they've the ambulance have told yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So I guess like there's there's things that you can so obviously if they've got a um, if they've got an infection brewing, they can obviously be, sometimes be a bit delirious. Um, so that's unsigned. Um, obviously, a clinical history of um, incontinence, but whether it's um, urinary or fecal incontinence or both, um, can also sort of point you to a, a picture. Mm. Um, and also, what you, you know, obviously, what you can see and smell <laughs> is yeah. uh, can, can sometimes lead you to a source. Um, and, you got to smell the, it, the, the, Brad. Obviously, you need to you need to confirm it with a. You got to get that um, nose smell, Brad. You know what's that? Yeah, white cell count. Yeah, you got to wear it's, it's a bit more difficult now with the Martha and wearing masks. Yeah. But um, you know, if it's if it's a good going sepsis, I think you can smell it through the mask. Yeah, I reckon you're right, bro. There you go. <laughs> Brad's definition of sepsis: you can smell it through an N95. <laughs> you got it. That's a good going Eurosepsis. <laughs> uh, podcast finished. <laughs> <laughs> so That's good. It. I love I love the Eurosepsis elderly. Um, elderly. I, love, I love that dude elderly and also um you know even putting in that too you get um developmentally delayed patients as well can be one totally. missed as well with eurosepsis i love that one um, i guess i guess sorry just to add to that i guess as well is um things to think about when you're looking at septic patients or septic looking patients um in terms of like you know their vital signs is is like you know have they got insertion so like a, have they got a pick line have they got a porter cap have they got SPCs or IDCs or anything like that that could be, you know, the gateway to the um, systemic system. So that's that's another thing that we can sort of, you know, think yeah. about when they first come in as a as a quick go-to. Yeah, I love it. I love it. That's good. Um, Tino, what about for you, mate? What are some things you've seen in relation to sepsis that sort of triggers off your your brain? Yeah, I think another sort of relevant um, presentation of sepsis is chest infection. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with with what what COVID has brought upon. Um, so I remember when I was working uh, as an emergency nurse, uh, septic patients with chest infections come in with a long-standing cough that 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 was ignored for a couple of days. Came in with fevers, um, with, with increased rate of breathing, and along with those clinical signs and symptoms, they also have what Brad has said is a bit of tachycardia, a bit of hypotension, a bit of delirium. So that's, for me, anecdotally, that's one of 
apart from your sepsis occurring in between, chest infections is one of another sort of relevant um, uh, infection that can cause sepsis. Um, just adding on what Brad has said, um, with the systemic response to sepsis, I think that infection triggers that immune response with regards to inflammation and stuff, the inflammatory substances in our body makes our vasculature a bit relaxed or dilated. Mm. And that, and that sort of goes into how we develop that bit of a shock state. And I think with regards to sepsis, that having sepsis shock is sort of the end of the spectrum. I think it was one of the bad, bad things that could happen. Mm. So yeah, we've, we've sort of, from a clinical picture point of view, we've, one of, that's one of the, one of the things that I've seen as well. Yep. Which, which we'll talk about too, that, you know, our patients that get septic end up going down this pathway and they can go into like a multi-organ failure. Um, and we want to prevent that um, sepsis by or, or treat it because if they already come in septic um, and target that therapy towards where they are needing it, um, which is important. So I love how you guys raise um, being febrile, tachycardia, um, increased respiratory rate. You guys raise things like hypotension. Um, you raise things like Brad talking about, you know, the cap refill, actually doing a central cap refill. Um, so often than not, an exposure, that's probably one of the biggest things to is sepsis. How often have you, um, you know, you expose someone and then, you know, you look down their leg and, you know, you've looked at them an hour later and they've got like a, you know, crazy cellulitis down their right leg that no one's actually had a look at. Um, yeah. And, like, yeah. And during the floods, I think I did a shift down in 80 in a night shift. And after the floods, there was uh, heaps of presentations with um, like cellulitis. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's, that's another thing to consider. It's cellulite, cellulite, like cellulitis can get ugly too. Yeah, it can, it can. Um, and we just, sometimes we don't think of that. We can think of our big septic patient that's got all these things going on. Um, but we, yeah, I guess that's, how commonly is sepsis for you boys? How, how, if you're working a shift in ED or ICU, um, how commonly do you see a patient that meets those sepsis criteria? From an ED perspective, I think um, I see it probably daily when I'm on the floor, for sure. Um, we have the, you know, sepsis pathway. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, you need, you know, it fits this criteria. So you tick, you know, three boxes, all right, you meet the yellow criteria. You, you tick four boxes and you meet the, the red criteria and you need to sort of get sorted out quickly. And I reckon, re like, probably daily or second daily you'd see someone who's got a reasonable going good going sepsis not like a not like a resus septic shock patient but someone who's sort of sitting on the border there like not 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 well yeah um but you know well enough to go to the wards at that state and i think um from the emergency perspective understanding what what like how we can manage that is probably like a a big part of it so like you know in terms if if you even just simple things from like a nurse's perspective to the doctors, you know, cause we have plenty of, you know, doctors flying in and out from all over the world up here in Tweed. Um, and I mean like things like using the septic, um, the sepsis pathway or initiating the sepsis bomb on the first net kind of thing to just trigger that, you know, Oh, we need to think about this. You know, they have ticked the certain criteria. We need to do this, 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 and this is something we can do as nurses to, 
prevent someone from going into septic shock, you know, then therefore, you know, ending up with Tino up in ICU. Mm. Um, so I think, I think there's, there's lots of things we can do from a nursing perspective just to get the ball rolling. And obviously that comes with time and experience, you know, you see the early warning signs of someone that may be going into shock or, you know, is sort of on the borderline of hitting one or two of those markers, you know, where they're febrile and tachycardic, but they're normal intensive. Um, but, you know, there's things can change, like you said, like, you know, hour later, all of a sudden their legs, you haven't looked at their leg and it's cellulitic and they're, and then now they're hypertensive, needing whatever inotropes of some description mm. to, uh, and they're back in there, they're, they're rushed into recess. So mm. I just think, um, I think it's something that we need to be, be wary of, especially in a busy emergency department like we, we work in. Mm-hmm. That's true. Hey, and like the CC's got this, like, like what you're referring to, the CC's got these, these guidelines for sepsis. And it's pretty easy, you know, like if you hit the red criteria, it's pretty much you know, you're pretty bad, that that being, you know, systolic blood pressure below um, 90, a lactate over four, I think it's a base excess below minus five. Um, and that's like severe septic shock. And then you've also got, you know, the two yellow zones. And generally, like you said, you'll have someone meet those two yellow zones pretty frequently in an ED shift, whether that's tachycardia and a fever or hypertension, and you know, tachypnea. Um, but like you said before, it's, it's really good to identify earlier um so that later on it doesn't get missed down the track um how about for you tino in icu i think from an icu perspective um as similar to brad i we get sepsis presentations um daily and from a host of 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 reasons sometimes um they get an infection from the community that got worse and couldn't um couldn't be sort of addressed downstairs in ad Sometimes um, we get them from the wards where it... it um, I'm not saying uh, ED, ED does their job every time, Tina. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, these are, very sick these, are, these are very sick patients. <laughs> these are the ones who... who do, but I know, yeah, you, 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 cut, you sort of take care of them really well. Anybody really <laughs> to one hour, I take that all back. the time. I take that back. Hey, we got, we got, we've only got four hours. That's all we got. We've got to do four hours. <laughs> yeah. we leave, we leave them on the bed and send them up <laughs> i take that back i take that back. <laughs> i'm joking I'm jo- <laughs> um so yeah it's 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 quite um prevalent um and from a host of reasons they so they get infection community they get an infection post up and they get it gets mixed it's get missed in the ward um so yeah i the what Brad has mentioned about the the screening tool, it's was it's really a helpful way on how to catch it. I remember Drew, one of the CNEs, where he literally p- places one sepsis pathway in in every patient bay. And I remember catching a patient with that's meeting the sepsis criteria and being addressed early. Um, going back to ICU, we. Because it's ICU, we see very sick patients that requires a lot of um, a lot of sort of different therapies, and we see, as I've said, we see it quite often. Sometimes we see it every shift. Um, so yeah, that's that's from an ICU perspective. Mm-hmm. It's quite common too, and I think um, talk to me about like you know, there's all simple ones that we sort of know. We sort of see you know, respiratory rates that are up, you know, sats that are low, 
blood pressures that are low, heart rates that are fast or super low. But talk to me about cold sepsis, so patients that can technically not be febrile. Um, most of the time we think that infection, we sort of see an elevated temperature. But have you guys ever seen a patient that's been cold rather than hot? I personally haven't seen too many cold sepsis yep. uh, in my time, just um, as I said, previously working in ICU and now working in ED. Um, but obviously it's, it's I guess it's if they're meeting other criteria other than just the, the, yeah. they're not in the febrile box, they're ticking the other boxes. Um, so, yeah, I guess it just throws a, a sort of um, spanner in the works because, like, I mean, you can be, you don't you can be hyper you can be hypovolemic shock which could cause hypotension yeah uh, and tachycardia and tachypnea and all these signs kind of to um try and resolve the likely acidosis that's going on mm. um so i mean there, there is the different types of shock that don't involve necessarily just um you know a, an infection yeah a hypovolemic shock like you know in emergency i guess more so not so much in Tweed because not much of a uh, you know a, a trauma center or anything but you know at, you know at St George back in the day it's people come you know gunshots and and people get flown in from down the south coast with their leg you know um cut off from a train or whatever it may be just all this stuff so they lose a lot of fluid so they're not necessarily they're shocked but they're not uh, and they they sort of tick the septic pathway, but they're not febrile because they haven't got an infection. They're they're shocked from another for another reason. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's hard too with sepsis because, like you know, it's you know we know that it's a systemic response to an infection. We know also that we don't want to be treating people, everyone that has a fever, you know, getting antibiotics. So it's knowing who we're going to target that therapy to, and who's actually going to meet that criteria, and who are we worried about. Um, and we don't want them to become severely septic because we know, I think the mortality rate of severe sepsis is like 18 to 20%. Um, mm. So it's quite high. Mm. Um, and we know that, you know, if you go into septic shock, I think your mortality is over 40%. Um, so it's saying that we don't want our patients to get to that stage. Um, but it's imp- imperative that we sort of treat well. How do we treat um, sepsis in the emergency department once we recognise it? Um, so in the emergency department, I guess, as I said earlier, you, you follow, you know, there is the, the sepsis guideline or the sepsis pathway to follow from the CEC. Um, so basically, first line is to obviously get uh, a full set of bloods, including blood cultures, um, preferably from two sites if you can, um, and blood cultures from any sort of, if you have, a, you know, a, uh, an insertion, so you either be like a pick line or a, a portacath or a you know, anything, any other, other, other kind of central line, you want to get a blood culture from that to make sure it's not line sepsis. And then you obviously want to get peripheral cultures as well. Um, and then I guess treatment is, uh, first up is, is get some fluid into them. So um, some IV fluids of, of some description, generally it's usually just like a, a saline or a, or a Hartman's uh, likely is what they sort of roll with. And it's like a litre of that to go to start um and then once we've got the cultures is to get early um iv antibiotics into them um so that's that the the you know gold standard is to get that all done within the hour of them arriving to the emergency department um so they've had about i've had some fluids um which will hopefully res- help resolve uh their hypertension tachycardia um and then and then we start them on antibiotics early to obviously fight whatever infection they have and, and you know sometimes we have no idea so you, you start them on a broad spectrum antibiotic 
Um, and then, you know, later down the line, once they've been admitted, they can sort of tailor the antibiotics to treat the infection once we know where it's, where, what it is and where it is. Yeah, sweet. And, you know, like it's, we don't want to be, like you said before, it's important that we're getting that ac- those access points, getting your bloods off, running a gas. Um, yeah, check the lactate. Yeah, check the lactate, your pH and your bicarb and base excess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then giving fluids and, and we become, we've become a little bit more cautious with our fluids, which I think is a good idea. Um, yeah. Which yeah. I think we know we used to bang in a shite load of fluids. Like right away. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was like banging to, you know, it's like, hello, open up. But I think we're being <laughs> yeah. More, um, yeah. You know, a little bit more judicious, which I think is great. Um, I think. We're- yeah. With regards to the fluids, um, yeah. I just want to add that there is, um, regards to the evidence, there's sort of not a really strong evidence with regards to giving a judicious amount of fluids. Yeah. Sometimes a lot of fluids is harmful. So it's it's sort of being cautious, it's I think saves patients. So that you're right there, Ben said um, yeah, because sometimes you just bang a lot of fluids into a patient and that's yeah. sort of a bit more detrimental for them. hundred percent. I mean again. I mean, again, I guess with where we're sitting at the moment, I mean, and in, in EDs in general, like all over the country um, or definitely in the state, you know, like we have an older population as, as our an ageing population, I should say. So, you know, things you've got to think about in that instance. And, and from a nursing perspective, it's technically not really your role, but thinking things like, you know, do they have any kind of heart failure or um, yeah. left, uh, left ventricular failure, you know? So if you're going to pump in a litre or two of fluids, all of a sudden you're going to end up on CPAP Mm. The, you know and they've earned their an apo giving them fruzamides or yeah, yeah. you know what i mean so i think that things things fluids fantastic and i think they need it um but like you said you know judiciously um giving fluids and and from a nursing perspective that's that's sort of not our call what how much we give or you know how quick we give but mm. we need to start we need to think about the patient you know that's our job is to be an advocate for the patient and um we need to, you know, just be wary of what they've come in with. Sure, they come with sepsis, but oh, also they have CCF and they're on fruzamide and they're on a one litre fluid restriction, all these kind of things. You know, you need to, or they have kidney kidney failure or something like that. So we need to be mindful of what we're doing with the patients just because, you know, as I said, if, if they're an elderly patient with some delirium and sepsis, then they probably can't really advocate for what's going on. So we need to be the ones to... To advocate for them in that especially in that emergency department just to- yeah and i think too it's like if they've been septic because they have been on the floor for the past two days um and haven't drunk any fluids then you're thinking well you know we probably need to give them fluids because they're dry so assessing them yeah. at, at their state and yeah. saying you know do they have um you know do they have dry mucous membranes and are they tachycardic is yeah. really important Exactly. Looking at the whole picture, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's specific to the patient, individualized care. Talk to us um, in relation to, um, you know, you were talking about um, ICU um, and talking about um, patients that come up to the ICU from ED. Um, can you recognize initially that a patient can be heading that way to an intensive care unit early on in the piece? Yeah. So, um, so basically, when a really sick septic patient um, gets treated in the ED, um, as what Brad would have said, one of the one of the mainstay therapies, fluid resus. That's fluid resus. Um, and if and other 
other therapies such as antibiotics within the within the hour. Um, a sort of indicator that they're heading up to intensive care is their vital signs or hemodynamic um, their hemodynamic parameters aren't getting better or aren't getting stable. Um, if their blood pressure is still um, going or, or having a downtrend despite fluids, um, or if they've been started with an inotrope or a vasopressor, I think that's one of the distinct um, signs that this patient might not might be going up to ICU. Or um, if the patient is um, generally getting sicker and sicker, and that's um, sicker in a way that patient more altered with his or her consciousness, um, the patient's, there's, there's hemodynamic instability, and the patient needs to be monitored more closely. So that's, that's sort of the parameters, conditions that could sort of tell you that the patient is heading up to ICU. And I think another one to point out from pre-hospital too is those patients that, you know, they're found on scene at home. Let's just say that they were, um, you know, picked up by ambulance. Um, they were found to be hypotensive from the first observations and febrile. Ambulance have given them some paracetamol, banged up 500 mils of Hartman's. They come to ED. Suddenly they've got a blood pressure of 110. They're afebrile 37.1. They bypass triage, not being flagged as septic. You know, a half an hour later, an hour later, you, you know, you, you sort of go past the bed and they're at 90 and they get some more fluids. Two hours later, they're sitting in a resource bay getting a central line and heart line. Um, you know, those are sort of the ones I think about that, you know, obviously we fixed them, that initial fluid challenge, but they're still septic and they're still going to represent themselves again, um, being septic later on down the track. Yeah, and I guess that's why early and continuous um, assessment is important um, to help prevent those missed um, presentations. How would you assess someone, Brad? Let's just say uh, someone comes in on your bed space, you're the nurse looking after them in an ED, um, and you've been brought in, you know, just run me through a scenario where you've been brought in a patient uh, and how you would assess them as a clinician. Yeah, cool, man. Um, so obviously um, in ED, or, or depends on how you work, but we work in as an A to G format. So obviously everyone or most people should know what an A to G format is. Um, so obviously just working down it. And obviously when you get to one that's not right, you've got to try and address it. So in the instance of someone who's maybe a bit hypotensive or tachycardic, um, you know, you're going to go airways fine. They're talking to me, breathing. Um, yeah, they, may, they might be a little bit tachypneic, the stats are fine. So we'll sort of roll past that and then obviously get to circulation. You're like, oh, well, the cat refills slow, they're hypotensive, they're tachycardic. Let's sort this out now. You know, I felt I've, the way I work is like we, I don't roll through, I try to roll through an A to G and fix things as I go, or at least address things as I go. Okay, all right. So we've got to circulation. There's something wrong here. We need to fix this. So whether that's getting the doctor and to come and review the patient and, mm. you know, chart some fluids. Mm. Uh, and then I can keep sort of working along the A to G pathway. So, you know, disability. Okay. So they're a bit altered level of conscious, like, you know, they're a bit confused, maybe they're GCS 13, 14, uh, but their baseline is, you know, fifth, is GCS 15. That's something else to nothing. And that's something that we can't necessarily fix in that first instance there, their delirium, but it's not just obviously something to be mindful of. 
Mm. Um, and just rolling down the A to G pathway. So exposure, like we mentioned earlier, that's something I think is a big thing in emergency departments. Mm. Um, and it, where we are now at the moment, I think it's probably, you know, across most emergency departments is that you get them out of their clothes and you get them into a hospital again straight away. That's, just, you know, have to get them into the hospital because then you can see what's going on, you know. You can see um, those little bumps and bruises, those that cellulitic sacrum or or the cellulitic leg or, or whatever's going on that could be the source of this infection. Um, and then, you know, fluids, things like that. So we're talking about, like you mentioned earlier, like hypovolemic shock. So have they been at home, sick, not eating and drinking, you know, things like, you know, getting them to poke their tongue out, look at their tongue, dry muc mucous membranes, um, talking to them about, you know, the ins and outs of what's going on. Um, have they been going to the toilet or, you know, have they not passed urine for a while because they're too dry or their kidneys are sort of shutting down? Uh, and then, you know, the glucose. So I guess that's something that we would get probably on the gas, not, not overly concerned about the glucose in that first instance of a A to G if they're not a diabetic patient. Um, but it's definitely something to, to be keep an eye on. I love it. That's good, Brad. That's good. And I love how you said, like, it, you're true, like there are other types of, sepsis and not all of it is hypovolemia um yeah. but one of them could be and so sometimes you know if they become completely septic then when we're throwing fluids at them they're probably it's probably we know they're not going to respond that well to them if you know and we know that if they are fully septic that even when we throw fluids at them they'll probably end up dipping back down into that septic part oh. they need something to squeeze them which Tino mentioned before being those inotropic medications. Yeah. So when they're when they're initially septic and you're sort of ticking that early onset sepsis where they've got a little bit of tachycardia, that, you know, like you said, there's systolic sort of sitting high 90s, or low hundreds, you know, you're sort of like, oh yeah, bit of fluid. But as Tino mentioned earlier, I think it's something that uh, obviously can get can be difficult in a um, busy emergency department when you sort of strap for you're getting, you know, slammed on the beds once, you know, getting lots of patients in, ambos, all the rest of it. Um, but coming back to the patient and, and, you know, reassessing them and, okay, so we're giving them, you know, 500 mil bolus or 1,000 mil bolus or whatever it may be. Um, you know, oh, their blood pressure is better now, but in half an hour, is it still going to be good? So I think um, regular rounding of patients, um, especially those ones that you think are a little bit more unwell than what they might present at the time is, uh, is very important. How would you flag someone, Brad, that is septic and how would you approach them? So let's just say you're sitting on a bed and you notice someone's septic. What would be your terminology that you'd go across to one of the doctors and say, how would you approach it? Um, so from a, like, as I said, like most people, when you work in ED, it's quite a good, a good team. Lots of like all the doctors, good camaraderie. We've got a really good team here at Twee. They're easily approachable, even, you know, whether you're talking to the facings or whether you're talking to the registrar or the resident or whoever it may be, it's, you know, you can just go up and say, hey, this is, this is what's happening. This is what I think needs to be done. But I guess, in, you know, as a, to talk about it, you know, what you're meant to do, I guess it is by handover is sort of where we're at. So, you know, introducing yourself, which is probably not necessary depending on how long you've worked there, but the situation. So what's going on with the patient, um, you know, what they presented with. Um, so in, in your assessment, so look, I've had this patient on the bed and we've started on the sepsis pathway. Um, we've given them, you know, a, a litre of fluid um, stat uh, and their blood pressure perked back up and their heart rate, you know, trended down, all things are looking good. I've come back to assess them half an hour later and look, they're back to sort of baseline where they started. 
Um, and then I guess at the end of it, your recommendation would be, you know, I think they need to go into resus. I think they might need uh, more acute care. So whether that be, you know, starting of inotropes or, you know, just a, a closer eye with the resus nurses um, who obviously are more one-to-one -one or one-to-two at Tweed. So that's sort of where I'd go with it. Um, and like I said, I think we're very lucky at, at Tweed and, and in most places and most doctors, you know, you make a good rapport with them and they, they sort of know when you're, when you when you're serious and they need to sort of you know get things rolling quick smart so i think yeah. it's, it's pretty good yeah and i like what you said too brad like you you do um you know like it is a team of coordinating a bit of a team approach when you've got a septic patient hopefully they've been categorized as a you know category two or if not you identified them early and i think making that identification yeah. is good managing like you said before your eight your a to g your eight you know your abcs attaching all your monitoring you know putting in a cannula you know, doing your fluid resuscitation, like you mentioned before, and giving those broad specky or sending your bloods and doing your broad specky antibiotics are really important. Um, and that's good because I guess that, you know, we're, we're, we're being aggressive in our approach to sepsis. We're not sort of going, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get there in now, another hour later, two hours later. Um, yeah. But we're sort of getting early, you know, early identification, which is important. Like, hey, this patient doesn't meet the normal parameters something's not right yeah totally I and i think that. i think that's something that you learn as you you know as you nurse for longer you know i've been nursing eight years now you guys have been nursing a bit longer than me i think and um that's just something you learn like i think you know over time you're like oh you know it's, i've seen that happen before i know i know that's not good you know so now i know, I know that to, you know if someone's heart rate's high if they're heart rate's higher than their systolic blood pressure and that's that's a bit of a warning sign that something's not very good here mm. um and you know that's that's interesting something i learned from, remember paul the sir cnc cool he's cool he's cool dude and super knowledgeable super good clinician and i remember in a new grad so this is like eight years ago in a new grad you know orientation day he came and did like a bit of a sirs this is what we are this is who we did and you know talking about sepsis and deteriorating patients and stuff like that and that's something he said he said back now if your heart rate is higher than your uh and then your systolic blood pressure then something's going wrong we need to sort something out that's that's something that's a that's a red flag so um that's something that stuck me for eight years and i still think about it he actually mentioned something about the old remember the old um obs charts he used to write on yeah back in the a day and i think it was the, the you put the heart rate and the blood pressure on the same in the right. same sort of area and so it's like if you're and you put you, you have your dots for your um blood pressure and the arrow for your heart rate correct yeah and he's like if your seagull shitting on your blood pressure if your heart rate's shitting on your blood pressure then it's not good that's so seagull good. shitting on the blood pressure and I, honestly it's not it's not word <laughs> for word so don't hold me to it we get a patient into ed we identify that there's multiple different sources of sepsis whether or not that be euro, whether or not that be, you know, skin, respiratory, um, whether or not that be, you know, related to some form of, um, you know, medication of some sort, um, whether it's related to, you know, endocarditis or some sort of pathological feature. Um, and then obviously we've talked about, you know, giving antibiotics, you know, broad speckies. We, you know, we give Cleftraxone more than Panadol sometimes in emergency departments. Um, and then, you know, giving, obviously getting some sort of getting tests back, which Brad mentioned before, like getting a urine sample, if we can get one, 
you know, sampling lines, whether that be a port or a pick um, or an SPC, or maybe you've got a wound, um, doing those wound swabs, which is really important. Um, like the COVID stuff at the moment, which is pretty crazy. Um, not ruling that as a source of infection, which um, Tino raised before. Um, I guess what happens to our patients once we've done that treatment and they start to get sick and we, we go more into this sort of septic shock, what do we start to notice then, Tino? So, yeah, septic shock, it's it's when um, when the excrement hits the fan. Um, initial therapy fails. Um, and the patient's still sick. I think what's happening pathologically, what, what's happening is, um, so you've got some some nasty infection, the microbes entered your bloodstream, your, your immune response sort of um, responded to it, went to haywire, and those inflammatory uh, mediators um, sort of over, overexcited we were overexcited and those overexcited inflammatory mediators makes your blood vessels dilate and leaky so septic shock happens when your blood vessels gets dilated very leaky and intravascular fluid shifts from the intravascular space goes into the spaces where they shouldn't be and when that initial fluid resource um, and other initial therapy fails or doesn't uh, meet the doesn't stabilize the patient um, the next sort of therapy are your um, as what i've mentioned earlier one of them is your inotropes or vasopressors so these class of drugs um, help your circulatory system um, go back to normal. Um, like for example, your vasopressors, as the name suggests, it, it sort of makes your uh, vasculature constrict. As septic shock is, uh, makes your vessels dilate, these vasopressors um, bring it back to normal size or constricts your blood vessels. Inotropes, on the other hand, um, makes your heart pump a bit more effectively. Mm. And um, so these are classes of medications wherein um, get, that gets thrown in when your conventional um, fluid resource doesn't fix the problem. Another mode of therapy is your oxygen therapy. Um, since shock by definition is the, is the failure to perfuse organs effectively and by mean perfusion, um, and that, that coincides with oxygen delivery, um, oxygen therapy is giving more oxygen to the patient. And that can be, um, as simple as giving supplementary oxygen by a nice little cannula, um or at the end of the spectrum is intubating and mechanically ventilating the patient so those are sort of the other or the next stepwise approach into um caring for patients or managing patients that doesn't stabilize um, with initial management um anything else 
that you can think of there, Brad. Yeah, I was just going to say something too, Tino. Um, you know, we we always talk sometimes about our inotropic medications running through central lines, but I guess you know while we're waiting to secure a central line, we can easily start inotropic medications peripherally. Correct? Peripherally, yes. Yeah, that's true. And um, the most common peripheral um, biosuppressor or inotrope is your good old aramine or methoraminol, of the most common drugs that I sort of get handed over to in ICU from emergency. Really? So so patients getting boluses of 0.5 of a milligram um, methoraminol in, in an attempt to sort of push their you know, perfusion up or their map at like yeah. up to 65 so that eventually you guys will put lines upstairs. Is that how it works with you guys? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of, or, or sometimes they get, um, they get central lines and an art line in, yeah. in resus and we just um, carry on up in ICU. But yeah, okay. if um, peripherally just boluses or infusions of methoraminol. Yeah. <clears throat> Have you seen any other um, medications used peripherally? Um, sometimes half strength NORAD, if um, half strength NORAD perf, um, infusion, if um, is another option. Yeah. One of the medications that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think we um, we do commonly use aramine as like a bridging drug um, to try and support the the blood pressure um, and perfusion until we sort of get that. Um, you know, definite access without being, uh, and which is, as I said, as Tino said, normally is, is a central line. Um, but we do also use, as Tino all said, is um, a little bit of NORAD if we can, if we have to. Um, obviously, it's not ideal to use NORAD, noradrenaline peripherally, um, just because the risk of extravasation um, and damage to the surrounding tissues if that does happen. So, I mean, as a nerve, really sus nerve, things the things where thinking about when we are when the doctor's talking about you know starting noradrenaline is um you know we want we want a good size cannula like like you know 18 or 20 or bigger if bigger the better really uh in an, as proximal as we can um and then obviously as a nurse we're obviously keeping a closer eye on the surrounding tissues looking for any signs of phlebitis or or, or extravasation um and then, um, you know, trying to, you know, we don't want to run NORAD through too quick, I guess, peripherally. Um, and as I said, it's just a, a bridge until we do get that definite access being a central line. And, yeah, I like how you said it. it's just that, um, you know, you mentioned too about having art lines put into, which are good because then we can target our inotropic medication towards that blood pressure that can be a little bit more accurate, invasively measured as well. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. which helps and run our blood yeah. gases to sort of see how we're going makes yeah you get a, an arterial blood gas is obviously a lot more um is a, lot, is a better option than a venous blood gas um and obviously getting an art line makes that super easy to access that regularly as well as getting that you know constant look at the blood pressure um i mean like you were talking earlier about adding um adding oxygenation to the patient to help with you know when they're septic I guess something else to think about is that if they're profoundly hypotensive for a prolonged period, I guess you can have shock to the kidneys too. So that's definitely something you need to keep an eye on is like their kidney function. Um, and, you know, working in ICUs prior is they, a lot of the time they do end up on 
um, you know, dialysis, continuous good old dialysis. Yeah. therapy, which to any ICU nurse is the bane of their existence because they never work well. The, yeah. the line, well, it's always beeping and carrying. It's, it's, it's a nightmare and you're always changing the bags. Yeah. Oh, man, it's such a nightmare. But, I mean, you know, if, you know, I think that's something we need to, as, as not, a, not so much as nurses, but something as an as a, as a ICU nurse is a pretty regular thing to put to have someone on um, CRRT um, when they're septic because obviously their kidneys are have had a, had a, had a hit from the profound uh, hypotension. You know, as a someone who as a um, for the kidneys, we want to try and aim for a map of around of, a, of around seventy five and above uh, for for good uh, kidney kidney perfusion and organ, end organ perfusion. Um, but obviously, sixty-five is sort of where we. Sixty-five, yeah. 65's fine, but seventy-five is better. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Anything above sixty-five is. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important, isn't it? Because like, sometimes when you when you first started nursing, I didn't even really hear much about maps, and then as you go through, it's like you get into resuscitants. Like that's what we're targeting. Um, yeah. And the good thing to raise too is is urine output. You know, if you're getting a patient that's septic you probably want to bang a good old catheter in so you can at least see if their kidneys are actually what they're making. Um, most de- oh, yeah, most definitely, yeah, definitely. Sometimes it's something that we sort of miss sometimes and then, you know, go down the track and they're like, have they weed yet? And it's like, no, nah, I haven't weed at all. It's like five hours later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. We sort of we get yeah. a little bit lost on, which I think is something we can work on. Um, yeah. I guess run me through... Um, is there any misconceptions about sepsis that you sort of see or do you have any issues ever with, with um, sepsis in relation to working day to day? From, I think from, from a client or from a patient sort of perspective, um, and this is what just anecdotally, again, just what, from what I gathered from patients that um, they never thought that they would be septic. Yeah, okay. They think that... Um, being uh, having a very severe infection that puts them in ICU is it would not happen to them. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's from a patient perspective. Um, from a management, from a sepsis management perspective, there are a lot of um, a lot of myths out there about management, and one of them is um, about fluids that yeah. that fluid um, target or fluid administration target. Um, and there are a lot of um, a lot of uh, management misconceptions and or myths. Um, I'm curious, what have you gathered in AD, Brad, or from you, Ben? What have you um, regards to these misconceptions? Oh, I think for me, um, you know, sometimes we can, you know, when you get sometimes new doctors down, not always, but they can be like, oh, let's wait for this, or let's wait for that, let's wait for the urine to come. We're waiting for a urine. Let's wait for a chest X-ray. Let's wait for this. And sometimes not realizing that the flow of ED can be really, really, really slow. And when you've got, you know, when you've got 70 people in your department, um, then, you know, getting something that's so simple, like a chest X-ray can take you an hour, Um, you know, and I think then sometimes not clinically looking at them and going, you know, listen to their chest, maybe, you know, or doing those sort of things just can be not the confidence and then suddenly it gets delayed and then you look at it at the time and you're like, why did it take us two hours to get the antibiotics into the patient? Whereas sometimes senior clinicians can make the call really early and be like, yeah, cool, I, I think they're septic. 
you know, and that just makes the trajectory a lot quicker. So I guess that's one thing I'd talk about in terms of um, the management of septic patients. Um, and I also think that, um, I think I'm not seeing such a hesitation from clinicians to chart antibiotics. Um, when I initially started, sometimes there was a bit of that pushback because nurses would say this patient's septic and there might be a pushback, but I think now just due to that, um, you know, I think it's 2012 and all that making sepsis a bit more campaign, that sepsis campaign, I think sepsis has become a bit more widely known that it does affect our patients and that we should be getting onto it early. That's, that's, that'd be my call on it. Um, and the fluid stuff's definitely a big one. I think not bumming them with fluids because if they, if they do become, you know, there's yeah. worries, yeah. I think that's a big one. Now we're just bolusing small amounts like 250, 250. Yeah. Then we're yeah. going 500, another 250 is still low, you know, listening to their heart, you know, doing those sort of things. So we're becoming a little bit more targeted to our therapy. And I think that's better in my personal small opinion in relation to it, but we still, if they're clinically dry, then we can give fluids, but we don't just sort of go, oh, every patient, then liters. Yeah. two liters, yeah. 20 liters. mils per kilogram, yeah. 30 mils per kilogram. Yeah. Targets. yeah. And I think, if, I think if you're looking at a fluid balance chart, and it's a fluid order chart and it's full, you should just sort of like at least go, oh, gee, you know, now when I look at a fluid chart, it used to be standard that you'd have a whole fluid chart filled. Now, if I see one full, I go, oh, what's going on here? Uh, and I'm realizing that maybe they're just writing 250, 250, 250, or at least it's giving me a little bit of a mindset to think how much fluid is my patient getting? Um, and am I just masking something that's underneath? Um, that's something to think about. Is, it, is, is this infection going crazy or this, um, you know, systemic response to an infection going crazy and the fluids are just bolstering this blood pressure up because the, the doctors or nurses have said, oh, the blood pressure is still 90. Let's give another fluid bolus. Let's give another fluid bolus, but you're not fixing the problem. The problem mm. is they need probably intensive care treatment and they need to move to another area uh, and they need more strict blood pressure monitoring. So it's not every hour you let them know it's every half an hour like Brad said, um, and then you're giving <clears throat> more of those treatments to sort of work with this you know, body that's starting to sort of shut itself down. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think what both of you said for sure. Um, I think that's that was honestly one of the biggest things coming from like a big Sydney hospital to a small little rural hospital. And there's, you know, it's a fantastic hospital. I really like working there. But the ICU, like I came from ICU and we used to take patients from ED that were like, you know, not even that unwell. And you just like, take them, let's get them sorted or give them 24 hours in ICU. Yeah. But obviously having a smaller unit, it does sometimes make it harder for the ICU guys to take them in terms of whether it be, you know, bed space, physical bed spaces or, or you know, you know, current climate nursing staff and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I find that, I found that's probably the biggest thing I found difficult is that people are not willing to pull the trigger on, you know, pushing them into inotropes. It's like, oh, well, I don't know if ICU will take them. Or I don't know. And that's nothing to do with like the ICU themselves. It's just the fact that, you know, in a smaller hospital, you, you don't have the resources that you have at a, at, a, at a bigger tertiary center. You know, you don't have the, the you know, 42 bed ICU, you have a 10 bed ICU, ICU and um, HDU. Yeah. That's so good. that's a good point. It's a really good point. So that's something I think sometimes the doctors are like, Oh, we'll just keep giving them a little bit of fluid. Oh, and then they go to the ward and they end up, you know, having a met call. Anyway, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's 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 probably the biggest thing you know, and that's just coming from a bigger hospital to a smaller hospital. And you know, as I said, that's nothing to say about the hospital at all. It's a fantastic hospital, but 
just the resources you have in those in the setting is is different and you have to work within those resources and i think sometimes with sepsis they're like oh we'll just sit on them we'll just give them antibiotics we'll just give them this we'll give them that and then you know get them to the ward you know as ed you know, push get them to the ward get them to the ward empty the apartment you get them out of the ward and then you know if you're the rapid response nurse you know an hour later you're at the bedside going oh i know this patient yeah that's a good one and then they end up and they end up sort of getting having to get you know rushed up to icu because now they're you know completely septic and they need inotropes and they need this and they you know yeah i've, I've got yeah. one that literally sits with me right like i think about it pretty regularly um even though it was like let's say six years ago yeah um and i think it's probably because it was my first day in icu or my second day on the floor in icu and i have a fantastic preceptor um and obviously they would pick the patients so they would pick this worst the sickest patients because obviously it's it's fantastic experience but you know scary all the same for someone who's come from you know the wards yeah. and then gone straight to icu and all of a sudden you got this septic patient who's got ventilators and they got inotropes and they got fluid and they got doctors telling orders and you're like, oh, I have no idea what's going on. I don't even know what, what this central line looks like. What's going on? scary. But yeah. like this one patient, patient, as I said, sits in my memory and I think he probably always will. Um, I won't mention any names, but he um, he was a chap who was uh, similar to my age, just about 22 or 2022 20, between that, those ages, young man. Um, had been out at a wedding he was on, had a few beers uh, the night before, had a bit of a, um, just a, you know, a disagreement with his, with his partner um, and then decided, look, that's, uh, you know, had a bit of a bit of a disagreement and then said, I'm going to get in the car. I'm, I'm out. I just got to get out of here for a minute. Um, this is down the South coast of um, New South Wales. Mm. And he was, um, so he was driving along the road, obviously a little bit um, intoxicated um, and he misjudged a corner and it went straight into a um, guardrail. Um, so the guardrail went straight through the front past uh, the driver, um, the front driver's side, straight through him um, and ended up in the back passenger door. That's where it ended. That's where he, so he was stuck between the guardrail and the car um, when the, you know, the Ambos and, and everyone else got there, um, which is pretty horrific um, as you can imagine. Um, and I remember getting to, you know, getting to ED, uh, sorry, ICU, and this patient was already on like sort of pretty maximal therapies. He was on uh, a couple of inotropes, um, intubated, hadn't been started on dialysis yet, but had been taken to theatre that day. He'd had um, the low knee amputation done. Um, and then he um, came back from that post-op and he was just, I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone like textbook septic like that like ticked all the boxes tachycardic febrile diaphoretic um obviously we were controlling his breathing so didn't have to worry too much about that urine output was low um peripherally shut down um and it's just all the all the things you can think of and that obviously it was one of the acute acuter patients in the um in the icu at the time and the doctors were there and i just remember my mind just being absolutely blown because he, he was doing exactly what tino said he had leaky leaky um, capillaries, so he was third spacing things and, you know, we're giving him fluids and they weren't going where he wanted them to go, they weren't staying intravascularly. It was on inotropes and, you know, it was all because of this septic um, leg wound. So he ended up actually having a hind quarter um, as like a, you know, 23-year-old chap. And I just sticks to me, sticks in my mind so vividly because, you know, 
coming in from the wards, like I said, going to this intensive care unit, which is just next level, like, you know, scary. And then, you know, we were, we were going into meetings with the family and saying, you know, this is not good. He might not make it. And, you know, come, you know, me never having been in that situation before, it was just out of control. And I just, that literally all the time, I just sit, that sits in my mind. And I think about him pretty regularly. And I still, I think I'll probably, that's one of those ones that, for the whole time I'm nursing, I think I always think about that my first patient in ICU and him just how unwell he was. It was just mm. wild. Um, Do you use that yeah. as a benchmark, dude? Do you use that patient as like a benchmark for you? Uh, no, I don't want that to be the benchmark because he was so unwell. I don't want yeah. get there. But like, I definitely, it's definitely something I think about. Like, you know, even yeah. you know, when they come in wounds or you know, a young guy because he was young, so he was fit yeah. and healthy. So he's like. You know, when he's everything was so out of whack for this, you know, 22 year old guy who's, you know, big and strong and fit and healthy and young, had a good heart, good lungs and everything. And he was still just so sick. I was just, it's something I just, I, I don't ever want to, to be honest, I don't want to see it again in the, in the yeah. you know, I don't, I don't want to be in that situation because it was, it was scary. Probably not so scary now. I've been, been around the traps a few, a bit longer now, but, you know, definitely I just, I, I use it as a benchmark of what I don't ever want to see again. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. I was yeah. saying like the benchmark of, oh crap, I'm going to crap myself with patients so well. Oh yeah, then that's the benchmark. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the benchmark for that. <laughs> that feeling of when you go, this is not good. Um, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think the longer you nurse, the more you, you just feel it. Like before you just walk into the room, you're like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. It's like we get a pediatric resus or something like, oh, I don't, I don't know what's coming in, but you get a bat going, you're like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> it's never good. You always, you know, always crap yourself when you've got something like that coming on. It's like your spidey sense, Brad. Oh, yeah. You just know, you're like, oh, this doesn't sound good. Or it's or like you, can, you should also get like a, oh. You know that game, you know, where you can do reverse? Like someone gives you a hand over and you're like, nut nah, reverse card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving that <laughs> you should always have that in your pocket. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not you taking that patient, this, bro. You this can is... keep this one. I'm going. I'm going. Yeah, I'm going to go home. This one looks really not good. This patient needs to go to ICU 45 minutes ago before I got here. Oh, <laughs> I like the challenge. I, I'm one of those people that love the challenge, so I'll take it I on. I do. But, I like it. I enjoy but, it. But there's times when you think, oh, what have I got myself into? I should have called in yeah. sick. No jokes. <laughs> <laughs> there are different ways on how sepsis would present it's not just the textbook fever tachycardia hypotension there are a lot of ways that sepsis um, could present and asking for another set of eyes or asking for help with regards to a patient would come a long way in detecting and recognizing sepsis or science and symptoms mm. of sepsis and that's a wrap for another episode on the edgm podcast i want to say thank you to everybody who listens to the edgm podcast you can follow me on instagram edgm underscore podcast where you can follow all of my feed all of my um posts that i put up and all of my episodes um i want to say thank you to everyone who comes on the episode um i really appreciate it that we can get education out there it's free for everybody to listen to um i've got heaps of episodes coming up um, and episodes are going to be dropping this month. I'll put some show notes that you guys can have a listen to. Once again, I want to say thank you. You guys are awesome. Have a great week. You.